Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're starting a new Advent series titled, A Light in the Darkness. Today, Pastor Jason Coker begins this series sharing from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, about having a type of hope that will inspire us to live the kind of life God intends for us. Now, here's the teaching titled, Light Has Shined. So our passage for today is Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to go ahead and jump in with that particular passage. Our uh, title for today is The Light Has Shined, and you'll see this actually uh, in the Isaiah passage in just a moment. Before we do, I want to set this passage up a little bit for you by telling you the story of Abijah and Hezekiah. Abijah was actually the queen of the kingdom of Judah about 770 years before the birth of Christ. And this is one of my favorite stories because at that time, during the kingdom of Judah in Israel, uh, Abijah was the queen to one of the worst kings in Israeli history, uh, King Ahaz, who really disrupted the identity of the Hebrews by displacing regular worship and essentially bringing in the worship of all kinds of foreign gods. And so for Jewish people today, Ahaz is considered one of the the great evil kings of their history because he really disrupted their national identity, their sense of national purpose, their sense of relationship to their one true God, the, the thing that made them genuinely distinct and began to steer them towards all kinds of evil practices. One of those was the worship of the god Molech, which has a long history in Hebrew tradition. Molech is that god that the uh, heathen tribes around Judah and around Israel, Molech is that god where people would come and sacrifice animals and even children to that god. And so in the Bible, when you sometimes hear about uh, uh, sacrifices being offered up of children, burnt sacrifices being offered up to uh, foreign gods, typically Molech is the god that that passage is referring to. And we've talked a little bit about this here. This represents kind of one of the greatest evils in the history of of Israel. And the history of the 12 tribes of Israel is this temptation to worship these other gods. And Molech is sort of the highest of those other gods. And so Ahaz actually attempted to sacrifice his own son, Hezekiah, to Molech in an attempt to really be sort of bound together with some of the surrounding nations. But Abijah, who was the queen, Abijah, Hezekiah's mother, was having none of that. So one of the really interesting and fun and crazy stories that we don't hear about or even read about in the Bible is found in ancient rabbinical literature that tells us that Abijah found out about Ahaz's plan to offer Hezekiah up as a burnt offering to Molech. And Abijah decided that she was going to save her son Hezekiah. And in order to save Hezekiah, she anointed Hezekiah with the blood of a salamander. And what we see in 2 Kings is that Hezekiah was saved, was not burned up when he was passed through the flames. That's one of those sort of odd backstories that you don't get just from reading 1 or 2 Kings. You don't have those details. But The ancient rabbinical literature tells us that Abijah was willing to do anything she had to do in order to save her son, and so Hezekiah was saved. Hezekiah then went on to become 
one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, actually returned Israel to Israel's rightful worship. But before that happened, we have Isaiah's prophecy here about Hezekiah in Hezekiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 3. We're going to go ahead and read that together. This is Isaiah uh, prophesying about the good possibilities that are to come because of the birth of Hezekiah, which he is essentially predicting. It says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. Isaiah goes on, verse 4, For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the part that should begin to sound familiar to you if you grew up in church. Verse 6, For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is, for me, just a fascinating passage and a couple of things I want to point out to you. The first is this really powerful and evocative language. I'm really getting warm, so I'm just going to take my sweater off here. This isn't like a metaphor for anything. It just means the heater's finally starting to work. This really powerful and evocative language that Isaiah uses about a light in the darkness. Uh, and it occurs to me that this phrase at the beginning, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, can apply and does apply to almost anyone, anytime, anywhere in the history of humankind. My guess is that even you and I, relatively wealthy and privileged and extraordinarily well taken care of people in the history of the world, even you and I can understand what it feels like to walk in darkness, to be in that place in our lives where we feel like no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we beg and plead or pray or appeal to others, that we feel like we are totally and completely in the dark. And then something happens. Something happens that begins to just shine a light of possibility on our situation. Now, and what I, I think is really amazing about that is it really doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how much money you have or don't have or you know, what color your skin might be, no matter how privileged you might be, and I am extraordinarily privileged, you still know what this feels like. You still know what hopelessness feels like. 
Maybe you didn't get the job that you were hoping for. Maybe you didn't get the girl you were hoping for or the guy you were hoping for. Maybe you didn't have the children that you were hoping for. Maybe you didn't have children and you were hoping for it. Maybe you didn't get the happiness that deep down inside you so long for and struggle for and fight for. Maybe you have had a bar of oppression on your back and you can't break it no matter what. It feels weird for me to stand up here and say that I know what that feels like, but I do. And I bet you do too. And I'll bet you know what it's like also when that moment of light happens. And when I say that sort of light that shines in the darkness, as Isaiah says it, I don't mean that all your problems are solved. Instead, what I mean is one day you're absolutely, utterly, and totally convinced that this will never be okay again, that your entire life is ruined and destroyed, you're sure of it, and then one day, for some reason, totally out of your control, there is a possibility that things will get better. You can see it. Like your circumstances haven't actually changed. You still don't have enough money in your bank account. Your family still doesn't particularly like you. Your friends aren't talking to you anymore. You still didn't get the job that you wanted. Your car still broke down on the way to the job that you wanted. Whatever it might be, whatever those circumstances are, your heart is still broken, but you can see the possibility of something better. That is hope. And that's what Isaiah is describing here. He's, of course, describing this for an entire group of people who are living extraordinarily meager and oppressed and subjugated lives in a region of the world that is extraordinarily violent, that is fraught with conflict, that is full of tribes and kings who are constantly trying to war against each other and one-up each other and take each other's stuff. And that's just the people who belong to the same tribes. Beyond that, there are additional kingdoms trying to take everything that you have. It's hard for me to really even understand what that sort of existence might be like. Because, you know, every day I wake up in the morning and the first thing that I do is I reach over to my end table and I grab my iPhone, right, and I turn it on. And while, like, my bleary eyes are beginning to open, I'm, like, scrolling through Apple News so that I can read 10 articles about what's happening in the world that are going to make me feel completely awful about the state of society, right? While I lay in my, like, you know, comfortable bed with, you know, like heavy blankets over the top of me and a heater running and, you know, two golden retrievers in my bed that I'd rather not be in my bed. <laughs> like, my life is incredibly cushy. You know, in my upper middle class home in Oceanside, which is by the ocean because it's Oceanside. <laughs> my life is so terrible. But every day I wake up and, and I have it easy, and yet I know what it's like to have despair. And because I know what it's like to have despair, I know what it's like to have hope. This is what Advent is all about. It's about remembering the hope that comes when things are extraordinarily difficult. 
There are a couple of really interesting passages here that Isaiah jumps into. Actually, I want to back up a little bit here to verse 3. I want to point these out to you. So Isaiah begins with this really evocative image of darkness, people walking in darkness, and then a light begins to shine. They see the possibilities, and he actually is going to name three possibilities here that I want to point out to you and ask you to maybe consider whether or not you can identify with them or whether you maybe know people who could identify with them. The first is, he says to this, uh, uh, the people walked into darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You've multiplied the nation. Now, you can't see this on our slide, but if you have a Bible like mine, it's very helpful if you open it up and you can see that the folks who constructed Scripture oftentimes will break these up into sort of paragraphs. Verse 3 is where we have essentially a paragraph structure that begins to tell us that this is where Isaiah's sort of oracle begins. This is where his prophecy begins. It starts in verse 2 when it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, darkness on them a light has shined. Now, verse 3. First possibility. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you. As with the joy at the harvest, as people exalt when dividing plunder. The first possibility that Isaiah is talking about with this new light that's shining in the darkness is the possibility for human flourishing. He's saying this light has made possible the idea that we could live in joy like people who have just had an amazing harvest. I'll bet you know what that's like, too. I'll bet you know what it's like to feel like you don't have enough, like you're existing on some sort of meager portion, and then all of a sudden something happens. I don't know what it is. Maybe you got that better job, or you got a raise, or, you know, you got a bigger than average, like, you know, IRS refund in the mail in, in May. I don't know what it was, but you got a bit of a windfall, and suddenly you rejoiced. You're like, oh. I can't believe this has happened. This is incredible. This is more than I counted on. This is exactly what Isaiah is trying to unpack. That feeling of incredible, upwelling joy when you don't just have enough, you have more than you needed, and it was a surprise. That is a place of human flourishing. Now, if I didn't want to give you the wrong impression about what kind of preacher I am, I might use the word prosperity but that is a terribly overused and very abused word in church. So I'll just say the promise here is that we might be able to live in such a way that we have more than enough and enjoy the joy that comes from knowing that everything is okay. That everything's okay. My guess is no matter how privileged you might be, no matter how nice your house is or how nice your car is, you probably experience a great deal of stress and anxiety about not having enough. One of the things I love about this church is uh, there are people in this room who have plenty, and there are people in this room who live in very unusual circumstances. But we all know that sense of joy when we get a windfall. Isaiah is saying that's one of the new possibilities that's dawning because of this thing that's happening. The second is this, verse 4. Let me go ahead and advance the slide for those of you who maybe don't have a Bible in front of you. 
verse 4, he goes on to say this, For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken on this day, or as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian, of course, is a reference to when... What's up, man? The day of Midian is a reference, of course, to when God liberated his people from Egypt. And so now the second possibility, the second hope, the second image that Isaiah is drawing upon is this image of freedom, this image of freedom from your oppressors. My guess is not very many of us know what it's genuinely like to be exploited and subjugated by somebody else every single day. But that is what Isaiah is talking about. So the first hope is the hope of just human flourishing, that we might have more than enough for our lives to meet our daily needs and we might be able to live in joy. The second hope is deeper than that, more primal than that. It is the hope for freedom from another person who is essentially telling you what you have to do every single day or worse, what you have to think or how you have to act or how your labor is used on their behalf and not their own. We could just go on and on and on about what human exploitation looks like, and it happens today. Fifteen years ago, I was leading a youth group in Park City, Utah, and we were talking about the subject of human slavery and human trafficking, and I said to the youth group 15 years ago, there are more slaves in the United States today than there were before the Civil War. And my youth group said, that can't be right. But it is, it's true. There are more humans trafficked through the United States today who are essentially slaves, genuinely, legitimately, factually slaves to somebody else than there ever have been, and it's a global epidemic. So when I say, I feel like I know what it's like to be oppressed because my boss is a jerk, it's not quite the same thing as genuine oppression, genuine servitude, genuine exploitation. Isaiah is saying that level of human existence where you are exploited by somebody and denied access to your own goods and rights, that reality has the hope, the possibility of being finally broken. And then the third is this, verse 5. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 5, Isaiah moves on to the third possibility, and that third possibility is nothing less than peace. That's what he's describing there. Saying, for all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. All of those symbols of warfare where we're willing, because of our oppression, because of our anxiety about not having enough, where we're willing to actually kill each other in order to get what we want. Isaiah says, no, there is a new possibility dawning, and that new possibility is for peace. That new possibility is that we could leave behind war and the tendency to do that to each other. Why is that? How is this a possibility? Well, Isaiah goes on and says... For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, 
Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in the church, when we use this passage on days like today, we're talking about Jesus. But it's important for us to understand that Isaiah was talking about Hezekiah. Isaiah was saying, we have been living in a terrible place up to this point, under the thumb, under the rulership of a, of a horrible, evil, violent, bloodthirsty king. But there is a new possibility incarnated in our world, a new child who could be a better ruler. And Isaiah goes on to name that child these names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is where hope stands distinct from mere wishing. Because hope is tangible. There's a, a psychologist named Charles Snyder who spent his entire career studying hope as a psychological reality. Spent his whole career doing it, died in, I think, 2006, 2007. He conducted over 2,000 studies on the concept of hope, and what he found was this, that hope is not just wishfulness, it's not just sort of pie in the sky, like, I wish everything could be good, and someday I hope that it will. No, for him, what he found was that hope was genuinely tangible and had the ability to transform us from a state of frustration and depression and anger into a place where we were genuinely empowered to do something about it, and that difference hinged upon hope being genuinely tangible. Here's what he found about hope. Number one, that hope is the single best predictor of living a life of well-being. That if you're a person who in, say, a survey indicates that you have genuine hope for a better possibility for you, that that is the best predictor for a future life of well-being than any other single factor. More so than who you were born to, more so than whether or not you were raised in poverty or wealth, more so than what race or ethnicity you are, that your self-reported ability to have hope predicts whether or not you will live a good and decent life. And hope has three components to it. The first component is that you have the ability to see a better future, which is what Isaiah is doing with these three passages. He's saying, no, no, a light has shined in the darkness, and here's what it could look like. A life where we go out and we work in our fields and we bring in more than we need, number one, because, number two, we're no longer under the oppression of evil, wicked men who oppress us and exploit us for our labor. And number three, that leads to a life of genuine peace where we are not warring with each other anymore. That is tangible. When you read those passages, you can see it. So hope has to be a vision for a better future possibility. When Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, you remember that speech? When he gave that speech, he didn't just say, we want a better world for African Americans. 
We want a better world for blacks. We want a better world for blacks and whites. We want a world without racism. We want a world without segregation. He didn't just define a future possibility for what it wasn't. He defined a future possibility for what it was. He said, I dream of a world where one day every child will be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Can't you just see that? I dream of a world where one day black children and white children will hold hands together on the playground. This is what he said. So hope has a tangible expression of a better future. You can see it. You can almost touch it and taste it. It's so tangible and real to us. Number one, the second quality of hope is that it depicts a path forward path ahead. It's one thing to be able to say, I see a better future for myself, but you actually have to know what the path is, or at least have some sense of what direction you're going in. This is true for you and for me, and my guess is that you know exactly what it's like. When that light shined in your life, when you were in a dark place of despair, and you suddenly had hope, it wasn't just that you could see a better possibility for yourself. It wasn't just that you thought, oh, I can see myself sleeping in a comfortable bed, or I can see myself living in a home that's safe for me and my family, or I can see myself having a job that's good for me and for my family. It was also that you could see the possibility of how to get there or at least the first few steps. If we can't see that, if we can't imagine how we get there, then it's impossible to have genuine hope. And the third thing uh, that Charles Snyder found was that you had to have a sense of how you could participate in it. So it wasn't enough just to see a better future, it wasn't enough to just see that there was a path, but you had to see that you could be a part of that path you could see how you could do it. We see all three of these components in Isaiah chapter 9. The part I think that's hard to, to capture, or the part that's easy to miss, I should say, is the Israelites' participation in their own better future. Isaiah depicts a better future for them, and then he gives them the path forward. The path forward is that God's intentions for them, God's desires for them, his better future for them, are made manifest in the person of Hezekiah. See, the path ahead starts with them having a better king. A king who isn't wicked. And so now I, I think it's easier for us to understand why early Christians read this passage and saw Christ. Because Christ is the manifestation of our better future. Christ is the crystallized incarnation, the made flesh expression of God's better future for all of us. Christ is essentially what Hezekiah turned out not to be. The other thing we learn about Hezekiah in ancient rabbinical literature is that there's a whole school of thought who believe that Hezekiah was supposed to be the Messiah of the Jews. But he fell short. He didn't quite make it. Partly because he doubted. So for early Christians, 
experiencing the hope that Christ tangibly brings into their lives, they read Isaiah 9 and they see that God has brought the incarnation of a light in the darkness for them. We see that Christ has come to fulfill the promises of all these very same things. That we could be people who are free from the anxiety of not having enough. That we could be people who are free from the exploitation and oppression of others. That we could be a people who finally realize true peace and goodness in our community. Christ is the incarnation of those things and therefore becomes the one thing that we pin our hopes to. Because he demonstrates the ability to bring those things out in our lives. My guess is you know what that's like too. How Christ came into your life in some way. And that coming, that advent of Christ in your life was like a light in the darkness showing you what was possible, showing you where hope was, showing you the path ahead that God had for you so that you could be a person who lived the kind of life that God intended for you. A life of peace, a life of flourishing, and a life of freedom and liberty. That's the life that God promises. Here's the tricky part. It's not just a promise for me as an individual. It's not just a promise for you. As people of faith, our challenge, and we see this in Isaiah, is that we have hope not just for ourselves, but that we have hope for our community. Isaiah's promises weren't for just the person who happened to be reading this scroll. These are promises that God has for all of us. We exist as people of hope who can bring flourishing and liberty and peace, not just to our own households or to our own hearts, but to our community as a whole. That's what Christmas is really about. It's about the coming of Christ's promise for all those good things for all people. That's our challenge. And so today, on this first day of Advent, I want to just put before you that each week we are moving down that path towards the hope of expectation for the Christ who has incarnated those possibilities for all of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you again for these uh, passages that challenge us and inspire us. We ask that you would come and make these hopes real in our lives. I pray, God, that as we visit these ancient words over the next few weeks, that you would rekindle in each of us a hope for the good things, the concrete, tangible things that are promised by your gospel. That as we step into our faith in you, that we would be able to walk out a greater sense of your goodness, your flourishing for us, a greater sense of our liberty, our freedom, to be people who are productive and bringing about good things in our community. 
I pray that you would make us a people of peace, people who offer a tangible alternative to weapons and warfare, a people who can demonstrate that leaning into our relationship with you brings about good things in this world. Prepare our hearts for Christmas as we spend the next few weeks remembering what your promises are and how to live them out in Jesus' name. Amen.